Jesus came to save people from judgment. Those who reject Jesus will be judged by the gospel they have rejected. Whatever you love more than God is your idol that is preventing you from following Jesus. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you turn to John 12, John 12, we're going to finish the chapter today, Lord willing. Most of you know we've been in the study of John since last November. Uh, we're now about halfway through the book, but we're in the very last week of Jesus' life. And this lesson marks the very end of Jesus' public ministry. So today we're going to look at the very last words that Jesus said publicly to the nation. They're probably spoken somewhere between his triumphal entry on Sunday and his crucifixion on Friday. We're not exactly sure. We suspect it's probably Tuesday or Wednesday of Passion Week. It's been said that last words are lasting words. And these last public words of Jesus are words of gracious invitation. So let's pick up the narrative in, in John 12, beginning in verse 35. So Jesus said to them, quote, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. Verse 37, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Here's the first principle. People reject Jesus because they love their sin and don't want it exposed. People reject Jesus because they love their sin and don't want it exposed. John is going to spend the first part of this lesson today explaining why Israel, in spite of three years of supernatural science, fulfilled prophecies, obviously divine power, still refuses to accept their Messiah and believe in him. And you and I are faced with the same problem. We have friends, relatives, many of them we love and care about, who for whatever reason have been exposed to the gospel in some cases for years and years and years and still persist in rejecting it. And for you and I who are in Christ, it makes absolutely no sense. It seems like they're stuck on stupid. And before Christ, we were there. Only when the Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes, we can see. So the first part of this section we're looking at right now talks about light, 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 lots of light, right? If you've ever gone camping, you understand darkness when the sun goes down when you're camping is a very different experience than darkness in the city, Right? When the sun goes down and you're camping, it's really dark. And if you try and, you're, try and find your way to the toilet or wherever you're going outside without a flashlight, which I have done, 
Not only will the mosquitoes eat you, but you can stumble, you can get lost, and you can encounter animals that are wide awake at night. If you really want to wake up at night about 2 in the morning, go find the potty and see a set of lights looking at you, a set of eyes looking at you, you will too be wide awake, right? So Jesus is, John is talking about the light. He's talking about Jesus as the spiritual light of the world, and Jesus records his last words, and he says to Israel, walk with me, the light of the world, believe in me, the light of the world, so you will not be spiritually lost. His last words were an appeal to belief. He was calling them to place their faith in him as their Messiah, to be saved and to become children of God. And he was only a few days away from his death and subsequent resurrection. Now you say, well, on what basis does Jesus claim to be light? Well, he's demonstrated that he's the Messiah for three years now through hundreds of supernatural miracles throughout the land. And Israel has refused to believe in him. By and large, the nation has rejected him. The scribes and Pharisees were trying to kill him. The crowds had stopped following him months before because he wasn't the conquering king that they expected. They wanted a Messiah that was going to be a political, military leader, throw off Roman rule, set up Israel. And Jesus said, that's not me, I came to die. And the crowd is expecting a king who's going to conquer everyone, and this is a king who's going to die, and they think he's an imposter. They think, you're not the Messiah of the Old Testament, you're a false Messiah, and so they turn against him, and by Friday, they're screaming, crucify him. Now, it says, interestingly enough, after he spoke this last invitation, he went away and hid himself from them. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First reason, he hid himself so he wouldn't be assassinated and murdered by the Pharisees before Friday. Jesus had a specific, eternally predetermined date with a cross on Friday of Passover, and he was going to die when the Passover lambs were sacrificed at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. That was a specific point in time set by eternity past, and he wasn't going to be killed before then, so he hid himself from the Pharisees, so that would not occur. What's even more telling is when he hid himself, his ministry with the nation was done. Their opportunity to respond to him as the Messiah was over. Opportunity was gone. He had already told them, you will seek me and you will not find me. And where I go, you cannot come. That was now lived out. Isaiah 55, 6 reminds you and I, seek the Lord when? While he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. What's the implication? The day of opportunity does not last forever. So when the Lord is telling you to do something, convicting you of sin, calling you to draw near to himself, respond when you hear his voice, whether it's in his word or through a friend or through a sermon or whatever. The God of the Bible is a very patient, very merciful God, but he's also a just God. And as Thomas Jefferson said, I fear that his justice will not sleep forever. Think about, think about the patience of God. Before the flood of Noah... It says that people did evil only continually, which means every thought and intention of their heart was evil. They were 
sold into slavery to sin. And God announced to Noah that there's going to come a coming flood and I'm going to destroy the world. But he waited 120 years before he brought the flood. He said, Noah, you build the ark. That's going to be my object lesson. And you tell people the flood's coming even though it's never rained. And people are going to know why you're building the ark and you preach righteousness and tell them it's time to repent because God is furious with the sin and I am going to bring a flood. And after 120 years of preaching, eight people responded. And they were all his relatives. Noah has three sons and their spouses. And the rest of the world rejected God's warning and drowned. God told Abraham, I'm going to bring judgment on the Canaanites. Their evil is excessive, extreme wickedness. And God waited how long? 400 years before he bought judgment through Joshua. The U.S. is only 250 years old. God is a very patient God. But at some point, he says it's time for judgment to occur. God pronounced judgment on the Assyrian Empire through the prophet Nahum about 640 B.C. And then he sent Jonah, go tell him, repent or you're going to be overthrown. And Jonah went, finally, and God delayed his judgment because they repented until 612 B.C. He gave them a generation of grace because they repented. And God's patience with Israel is almost incomprehensible. It is sheer grace. During the period of the judges, 350 years, Israel rejected God over and over and over and over again. And instead of destroying them for worshiping idols and rebelling against them, God disciplined them with foreign invaders, raised up a judge, called them back to himself. They repented. As soon as the judge died, they turned around and said, God, hasta la vista, baby. These idols over here are much better than you are. And they went through this cycle seven times, right? Multiple times. During the period of the kings, God warned Israel for more than 200 years in the northern kingdom and more than 300 years in the southern kingdom, stop your idolatry, or I will discipline you. And they didn't, and he gave them multiple centuries of warning before he sent them into captivity. Just before his death, two days ago, on Sunday, Palm Sunday, Jesus warned his disciples about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Forty years later, in 70 AD, Titus Vespasian Roman general, invaded Israel, sieged Jerusalem, and slaughtered over one million men, women, and children. God is a very patient God, or none of us would be here. Amen? Amen? We would not be here. I certainly would be the first one in line to be out of here if God was not patient. But ultimately, God will judge sin. And John is highlighting this continual unbelief of Israel Despite three years of supernatural miracles, despite the patience of God, despite the demonstrable divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, even Jesus' enemies who wanted him dead acknowledged the magnitude of his miracles. The Sanhedrin, which is the scribes and Pharisees, the ruling judicial body, the Supreme Court of Israel, they convened a council against Jesus, and even they who wanted him dead said in John eleven forty seven, 47, what are we doing 
For this man is performing many signs, signs being miracles. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the people that had every incentive to deny his miracles didn't deny his miracles. They acknowledged they were so enduring and so many and of such quality that people all over were believing in Jesus and following him and they were terrified. And those miracles were designed by God the Father to produce faith in Jesus the Son. And yet Israel refused to believe and rejected their Messiah. And John, earlier in the book, tells us one of the reasons why. Israel, and one of the reasons why you and I today, sinners in the 21st century, still reject Jesus. And that principle is found in John 3.19. This is the judgment. That light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. You know, sinners know their sin is wrong. They have a conscience. But they defend their behavior. They excuse their behavior. They rationalize their behavior because they love their sin. And they don't want to give it up, number one. And number two, deep down, they know they can't. It's like talking to somebody who says, well, I've been smoking for 30 years, but I can quit any time I want. I just don't want to. Or drink, or whatever it is. Yeah, you don't want to because deep down you know you can't, right? You need deliverance from that. People reject Jesus, the light of the world, because his holiness exposes their sin. By the way, you probably have acquaintances who really don't want to hang out with you a lot. Because the holiness of your life convicts them that what they're doing is wrong. And they say things like, well, you know, you're just not any fun anymore. Which means the stuff that they want to do, they will feel guilty about if they do it with you around. And they want to do it, and when you're around, they can't do it and not feel guilty. So they'd rather not have you around. Well, you're in very good company. They did the same thing to Jesus. So John not only tells us that Israel rejected Jesus because they loved their sin, and by the way, that's true for every sinner since Adam. Israel refused to believe in Jesus in order to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Look at verse 38. This, this rejection, was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet when he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, underline the word could, for Isaiah said again, quote, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Jesus, Isaiah said because he saw his glory and they spoke of him. Here's the principle. People who repeatedly refuse to believe in Jesus may be spiritually blinded by God so that they cannot see and believe the gospel. Let me say that again. People who repeatedly refuse to believe in Jesus may be spiritually blinded by God so that they cannot see and believe the gospel. So John first notes Israel rejected Jesus because they loved their sin. That's human responsibility. We're going to talk about human responsibility, divine sovereignty. Now John says that Israel 
could not believe because God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. That's God's sovereignty. So we're going to talk about God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and they are biblical realities. They coexist side by side. They are both perfectly true all the time, and you and I and our three-pound brains do not understand them. So, first things, humans are responsible to believe the gospel. How do we know that? Well, John 3.16 says what? Whoever believes in him, whoever, shall not perish, but what? Have eternal life. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Acts 16, 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. So this word believe shows up over and over again, and it's always incumbent on humans to exercise personal faith and believe. That's human responsibility. We are called and commanded to exercise faith, believe, and be saved. However, Jesus said, no one can believe. No one can be saved apart from the sovereign will of God. John 6, No one can come to me, what? Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Ephesians 1, 4 talks about our eternal election. He, God the Father, chose us in him, Jesus the Son, when? Before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. So on the one hand, humans are responsible to believe the gospel, and they're accountable to believe the gospel. And if they refuse to believe the gospel, they experience God's judgment. On the other hand, without the sovereign drawing of the Lord, you cannot believe even if you want to, and you won't want to. So salvation depends on God sovereignly choosing those who are to be saved from eternity past and human responsibility in choosing to believe and be saved. Now, John writes that Israel's rejection of Jesus, it's not the first time they rejected God. It's a repeat of something they had done 700 years earlier. Israel had been worshiping idols ever since Jeroboam, first king of the northern kingdom. And they ignored God's call to repent for 200 years. He'd been telling them, sent prophets to them, stop the idolatry. And God is very patient and merciful, but there comes a day when his righteous judgment will fall. Second Chronicles kind of sums up this whole 200-year period when he says, quote, they, Israel, continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until what? There was no remedy. It's over. God finally brought the Babylonians in to carry off Israel into captivity as punishment for their sins. Now John writes that this current rejection of our Lord Jesus Christ by Israel is a prophecy written in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, one of the most famous passages messianic-wise in the Old Testament, looks forward to the ministry of Jesus the Son, the Messiah. And Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah was written 700 years before Jesus was born, and it will be fulfilled in the future. But when you read Isaiah 53, you're struck with the fact that it's all written in past tense. And you say, 
How can an event that occurs 700 years in the future be written in the past tense? Who is speaking in Isaiah 53? The nation of Israel is the speaker in Isaiah 53. Now remember, let me take you into the future. God had promised that at the end of the tribulation, end of the tribulation, all Israel will believe and all Israel will be saved. And Israel's salvation will not take place until they're on the brink of extinction. They're going to be surrounded by enemies and in desperation they will cry out to God for deliverance at the very end of the tribulation. And it says Jesus will come back to earth and physically save them. The Holy Spirit will open their eyes. They will see and understand that Jesus was their Messiah. And they killed him. And they will repent with bitter tears that they rejected and killed him the first time he came to earth. So as Isaiah 53 was written 700 years before Christ, and it's a record of what Israel will say at the end of the tribulation about what they did to their Messiah when he was here on earth. When you read Isaiah 53, it's filled with words like our and us and we. And Israel, who's now saved at the tribulation, looks back and goes, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So they're basically saying, we refuse to believe the Messiah the first time he came. Why? Why did they refuse to believe? Well, he didn't look like the king they wanted. He didn't look like the political leader they wanted. How do we know that? Well, Isaiah 53, 2 says, he, the Messiah, had no stately form. He had no majesty that we would look at him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He didn't look like a king. He didn't act like a king, and they wanted the political leader, and therefore they said, you're an imposter. We don't want to hear about sin. We want political deliverance. Crucify him. The arm of the Lord, by the way, is always talking about the power of God. Anytime you see the arm of the Lord, it says, the arm of the Lord's been revealed. Well, what's the arm of the Lord in the life of Christ? How many miracles did he do? Raising the dead, walking on water, commanding storms to stop. That's the arm of the Lord. That's the power of the Lord that was revealed through Jesus, through the supernatural miracles he did. If you've got your Bibles open, John 12, 37 says, Israel refused to believe in Messiah. And verse 39 says, God prevented Israel from believing. By the way, this has happened before. In Isaiah 6, who John just quotes, next verse Isaiah is given a vision of God in the, king of, in the year of King Uzziah's death, about 742 B.C. And Isaiah sees Jesus seated on his throne, surrounded by heavenly worshipers, and John, uh, Isaiah confesses his own sinfulness, and Jesus cleanses him. And then the Lord asks, who's going to go for us? In other words, who's going to speak for God to Israel? And Isaiah says what? Here am I, send me. I'll be your spokesman, Lord. I will be your message. And God says, that's fine, Isaiah. Here's what I want you to tell Israel. In Isaiah 6, verse 8. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, 
and return and be healed. So God says, Isaiah, preach repentance to my people Israel, but understand it's too late for them to repent. For centuries they have refused to believe me, and now I'm making it impossible for them to believe. I'm going to give them what? Blind eyes, deaf ears, dull hearts. I'm making them spiritual zombies. I'm giving them spiritual Alzheimer's. They will not be able to comprehend the gospel, and they will be unable to repent. By the way, this is also going to happen on a global scale in the end times, when people reject the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2 says, he's talking about the people of the world, they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. That means they rejected the gospel over and over and over. What does God do with people who reject the gospel over and over and over? Verse 11 says, For this reason, because they rejected the gospel over and over and over again, God will send on them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Now, when God causes people to believe the lies of this world, he's not imposing that on them against their will. People who choose to believe lies choose to reject God's truth because what? They take pleasure in wickedness. Israel has refused to believe God for so long that God has taken away their ability to believe. And you and I know people like that, at least we suspect. We don't know for sure because God hadn't told us. First, they were unwilling to believe, and now they're incapable of believing. You know, at the end of the day, people who repeatedly refuse to respond to God, God honors that choice. C.S. Lewis said in The Great Divorce, In the end, everyone will say to God, Thy will be done. Or God will say to them, Thy will be done. For all eternity. And this principle is seen real clearly in the life of Pharaoh during the time of Moses. Remember that God commanded Pharaoh through Moses to what? Let my people go. In other words, release them from slavery. Pharaoh hardened his heart and said no. Now, fascinatingly, the Bible records that nine times Pharaoh hardened his own heart or his heart was hardened, and it records ten times that God hardened his heart. So we've got examples where Pharaoh hardened his heart, that's human responsibility, and God hardened his heart, that's sovereignty. Why did that occur? God tells us in Romans 9.17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Verse 18, So then, God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens who he desires. We're going to talk about the sovereignty of God, and you need to put your seatbelts on. This is going to be really uncomfortable for us Americans who believe that we're really in charge, right? As a matter of fact, human nature. So what was God's purpose in raising up Pharaoh? He tells us, I'm raising you up in order to demonstrate my power in the world through your disobedience. My purpose is your disobedience will exalt my glory 
through the demonstration of my extreme majesty and giving you ten plagues. Now, if Pharaoh had obeyed God's commands and let Israel go, the ten supernatural plagues would not have occurred. And then God's name as the Almighty One True God would not have been proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Remember when Rahab meets the spies, they come into into Israel, and she says, we've been terrified of you for 40 years. We've heard about all the stuff that God has been doing to the Egyptians destroying the nation. That was the result of the plagues in the Red Sea. And God wants to be known, and God wants people to know him. That's why he used Pharaoh's disobedience to accomplish his purposes, and that's why he hardened Pharaoh's heart. So you have three things here that we have to, two things we have to reconcile, and we're not going to be able to do it. Pharaoh was responsible for hardening his own heart and disobeying God, and God was sovereign in hardening Pharaoh's heart so that his perfect purposes will be accomplished. God told Moses in advance, I'm going to harden his heart up front before any of the plagues. He is not going to let people go, and I'm going to use his disobedience to exalt my name by doing marvelous things that will make my name known throughout the earth. So you have God's sovereignty and human responsibility are both true at the same time. And you and I look at that and we go, I do not comprehend that. That's right, because you and I are finite creatures and we live in space-time. Past, present, and future actually mean stuff to us. Past, present, and future doesn't mean anything to God. He dwells in eternity. So for him, it makes perfect sense. This is what we call a holy mystery. I know some of you look at your spouse and go, yeah, they're the holy mystery, right? <laughs> this is one of the holy mysteries. There's a number of holy mysteries, right? So he uses Pharaoh as an illustration, but what John's really talking about is Israel's unbelief. Israel's unbelief did not take God by surprise. God providentially used Israel's unbelief to accomplish his eternal plan to bring salvation to the entire world through Christ's sacrificial death for sinners. Think about this. What would happen if the Jews had not rejected Jesus, but they had accepted him as their Messiah? Jesus wouldn't have been crucified. If Jesus wasn't crucified, salvation would not come to earth. We would all be dead in our trespasses and sins, right? If Jesus hadn't paid the penalty for human sin, hell would be full of people and heaven would be empty of people. But God knew that humans would sin and that blood sacrifice had to be made to pay for human sin. We know that because before the creation of the universe, God had already planned that the death of Christ would pay for human sin. Revelation 13 tells us the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, which means before God created anything, number one, he had elected you before you were born, and number two, he had already slain the lamb from before the, crash, before the foundation of the world. And God knew that sinful people would choose to kill his son precisely on his divine timetable. And Peter tells us this in the first sermon he preached, and he refers both to human responsibility and divine sovereignty. I want you to look at this very carefully. Acts 2. Peter's talking to Israel. His great sermon in Acts 2. And he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. 
So you know that Jesus is God, Jesus is deity because of all the mighty works he's done, and Israel knew it. This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, that's God's eternal sovereign sovereignty, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up again. So the sovereignty of God had predetermined that Christ would die for sins through crucifixion, and evil, wicked men chose to murder him for self-centered, selfish reasons for which they are morally responsible. At the same time, humans are always responsible for the decisions they make, and God is always sovereign over everything, including human will. So if the Jews had not rejected Jesus, there would be no, no crucifixion, and no salvation. Second, if the Jews hadn't crucified Jesus, there would be no church. God's plan had always been what? Have a witness. I want a people that are on earth witnessing and telling the world about me. And the Jews were supposed to be a missionary nation. They didn't do that. And so God founded the church, which means anybody, Jew or Gentile, who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is saved and responsible to carry the gospel to the nations. So what we're seeing is God is sovereign over all things including evil. Now, if God is not sovereign over evil, you can just stop praying now. Because if he's not sovereign over evil, why are you telling him what he needs to fix? Why are you interceding for all the evil that's going on in the world? God is sovereign over evil, even the evil he allows, which means you already know the answer. No evil exists without God's approval. That should give you hope. Because God is sovereign over everything, you can pray about everything with confidence. Now, John's told us now, Israel refused to believe in Jesus as a Messiah despite the evidence, number one, they loved their sin. Number two, Jesus was not the conquering king they wanted. And number three, God has prevented them from believing. Now, he gives us another illustration of people who have rejected Jesus as their Messiah, verse 42. Nevertheless, despite Israel's rejection, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Whatever you love more than God is your idol that is preventing you from following Jesus. Whatever you love more than God is your idol that is preventing you from following Jesus. And John notes many of these rulers follow Jesus. Some of these were members of the Sanhedrin, you know, the, the Supreme Court. It's likely that Nicodemus was part of this group. It's likely that Joseph of Arimathea was part of this group. They were followers of Jesus, but they were secret followers of Jesus. Most of the group that had believed in Jesus were not publicly announcing it. They had not gone verbal. They have not acknowledged their faith in the Lord Jesus because they craved human approval more than God's approval, and they didn't want to get kicked out of their peer group. They didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. Their friends, their buddies, the people whose approval they craved more than God's approval, and Jesus has already confronted them on this in John 5, 44. He says, how can you believe in me when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the only one and only God? So they loved human approval more than God's approval. 
their idol was real simple. Prestige. Recognition. Right? That was more important. That was their idol, their false gods. Their identity was being part of the ruling elite. They'd rather be alienated from God than alienated from their peer group. That's profoundly relevant to us today. It's one of the reasons why we're not bold in sharing our faith, because we don't want to be rejected, right? We don't want people who, we want people to think well of us. Let me give you a clue. They don't think about you at all. We are not nearly as important to other people as we are to ourselves. Who thinks about you most of the time? You. The people around you don't hardly ever think about you. You know why? You know the phrase we use? Out of sight, out of mind. They don't see you in a while, you cease to exist. Their life goes on fine. When I'm dead and in the ground, I trust me, the world is going to turn just fine. It might even speed up a little bit, you know, less drag. So these rulers believed in Jesus, but it was a superficial faith. They observed his signs, and they believed that God was with him, but they did not continue with him. They did not commit themselves to him. And they did not believe that he was the only way to God. They did not give up their faith and their self-righteousness. They knew a lot of facts about Jesus. They knew the scriptures cold, but they refused to bend the knee and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And the book of James says, you believe in God, congratulations, the demons believe in him too. Wowie kazowie, right? But the demons have more correct theology than you and I do. They've got the scriptures memorized, all of them. But it doesn't do them any good because they refuse to what? Submit to God. They worship Satan, they worship themselves, and they, worship, they refuse to worship God. Here's an interesting question. How would you know what your idols are? How would you know what you value more than Jesus? And see, we are world-class at lying to ourselves. Right? One of Satan's key ploys is to keep you deceived on what your idols are. Let me give you a couple thoughts. What besides Jesus must you have in order to feel secure, significant, joyful, satisfied, fulfilled, valued, accepted? What happens if the hot water do here doesn't work and you don't get a shower today and you can't do your hair? You feel secure? What happens if a good friend of you misunderstands you and they reject you? Does it throw your world into disorder? What happens if you get a health diagnosis that's going to involve a lot of pain? Is um, health or wealth or comfort or approval... Are your children your idols or your grandchildren? How important are they? Are they more important than Jesus? I was praying for our grandsons the other day, and the Lord said, and he's wont to do that to me routinely, what about if I decide I want to take him home like I took your son? You okay with that? Good question. Who do they belong to? Where do they come from? Where are they going in 100 years, 50 years, three weeks, who knows? I own nothing. You own nothing. We, our very breath is a gift from God. Here's a diagnosis about your idol. What do you complain about regularly? 
could be your idol. We have people complain about our government and about politicians. Why are they that important to you? Has government become our idol? If there's evil in high places, can they thwart the will of God? Well, they're going to make my life. They're going to raise my taxes. Is money your God? Is regulation your God? I can't. I mean, they're, they're just interfering with my life. Who says they can't interfere with your life? If that's the will of God for you, is he more important than them? Anything that throw your lives out of kilter, you've got to take a very close look at it and say, is that an idol? Here's another question. What do you brag about regularly? I didn't say to anybody else. I said in your own heart. At least I'm not like those schmucks, right? I don't do stupid things like they do. Oh, really? In whose sight? Idolatry is massive, and it's a huge problem. And many times, our idols are not bad things. They're good things that we have elevated into ultimate things. We have elevated them above Jesus. And we generally don't know their idols until something takes them away. And then we go, that's really important to me. That's really important to me. How important is it? Sometimes we don't know that until it occurs. And then the Lord says, that idol you need to confess, repent of. I'm going to smash it so you will trust in me and me alone. Anything you love, value, elevate above Jesus is an idol. Now, you and I's ability to do that is probably not very good, so here's the deal. Read God's word and ask him to show you your idols. The Holy Spirit will be very faithful because he says, you will have no other gods before me and you are my child and I want your heart alone. Verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word which I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. So Jesus came to save people from judgment. Those who reject Jesus will be judged by the gospel they have rejected. Let me see that principle again. Jesus came to save people from judgment. Those who reject Jesus will be judged by the gospel they have rejected. Many, many people claim to follow God, but they reject Jesus, right? Oh, I, I, I know God. I, did, I just don't have that time for Jesus. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. If you reject Jesus, you're rejecting God the Father. The only way you can know God is through what? The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the first time Jesus came to earth, he didn't come to judge, he came to save by dying in their place. And he said, you can have a right relationship with God through accepting my payment for your sins on my behalf, and you have free will, you can accept or reject. But the inevitable consequence of rejecting is judgment. Every person will die someday, and one day the entire world will be judged. Anyone who is not saved will be judged for their sins. Since all their sins, I mean, any, any, those saved by Jesus will not be judged for their sins since all their sins have been paid for by Jesus' death. If you're a Christian, you will never face judgment for your sins. Jesus has paid that penalty. 
you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ for rewards, but never your sins. All your sins are paid for, washed away, says as far as the east is from the west, God has forgotten them. They are forever expunged from the record. Past, present, and future. Those who do not accept Christ's payment for their sins, what they're saying is, my own goodness is sufficient to justify me before you, and they will be judged based on what they have done. Now you look at the last judgment, the great red throne judgment, Revelation 20. God's books are going to be opened, and every person's thoughts, words, and deeds are going to be evaluated. God has a complete record of everyone's life who has ever lived from the nanosecond they were born until the nanosecond they die. Every single thing about it. Motives, thoughts, purposes, behaviors, words, all recorded. You don't have to worry. Yours is blood-stamped, paid for by the blood of Jesus. The people that reject Jesus, God's going to open those books, and the record of their life will reveal that they have fallen short of God's standard. Falling short is what we call sin. Now, you can be saved from sin. That's why Jesus came, right? And then it says there's another book that's going to be opened, and that's God's book of life. And anybody who is in the Lamb's book of life has been saved and has received through faith Christ's salvation. Anybody's name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, it means they have rejected God's solution for their sin. And that demonstrates, one, that God is perfectly just and everybody gets exactly what they deserve. The first book demonstrates everybody deserves God's judgment because their deeds are evil. And the fact that their name is not in the Lamb's book of life means that they chose to reject Christ's payment for their sin. Now, you can be saved from sin. What you can't be saved from is unbelief. Rejecting Christ's payment for your sins means you choose to pay for your sins yourself, which is going to take all eternity. And that gospel, I'm very much believing that when Jesus said, my words will judge you, that in the end, the unbeliever will be judged by every piece of scripture they have ever heard and rejected. Christ's own words will judge them for their rejection. The beauty of this is that those of us who have been blood-bought, we have sin in our life, and it's been covered and washed away by the blood of the Lamb so we can live with confidence and with great joy and not fear. Verse 49, Jesus said, Last words he spoke, and then he disappeared. For I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life, therefore the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus said, I didn't invent this message. It came from my Father in heaven who sent me on a mission to bring God's salvation to earth. And the gospel is not man's plan, it's God's plan, and it's more than an invitation, it's a command. The gospel is a command, Mark 1.14. It says, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What's the command? Repent and believe the gospel. See, every person's eternal destiny depends on believing the gospel. And it's our privilege and our responsibility to prayerfully tell them. I don't think we really understand until you start reading the final judgment of the Lord what will happen to people who reject. 
Here's the heartbreak. And it should break our hearts. There are people you love that you will not see in heaven. And that doesn't put a pitchfork through your left ventricle. You're not thinking. If you need some motivation to love them to Jesus, to pray for them, I understand that God is sovereign in calling them and they're responsible. You cannot make that decision for them. But we are called to pray and we are called to tell. That's why most of us, I think in this room, will be praying for our loved ones until the day we're in heaven. And that's what we're called to do. It's a great privilege. You pray that the Holy Spirit will open their eyes to see the truth and respond to the truth of the gospel so that they will spend eternity with Jesus. Okay, let's review and then Al will come and lead us in prayer and praise. Point one, people reject Jesus because they love their sin and don't want it exposed. Two, people who repeatedly refuse to believe in Jesus may be spiritually blinded by God so they cannot believe, see and believe the gospel. We call that dead men walking. Here's the point. You don't know who God has said, I'm done. That's why you bring the gospel every day to everyone. Because you don't know who God's elected and who he hasn't. We have been given the mission to bring the truth to them in love. Number three, whatever you love more than God is your idol that is preventing you from following Jesus. The Holy Spirit will show you them. Actually, part of most of sanctification in life, growing in holiness, is eliminating idols from our life. We have lots of them. And you have them, and I have them, and we don't even know all of them. And the Lord will show them to us so that we can repent from them. And lastly, Jesus came to save people from judgment. Those who reject Jesus will be judged by the very gospel they have rejected. Thank you for your attention. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.